everybody out there to Divorce Recovery Men Over 40 podcast, one of our first podcasts. And we have Bramlin Sweetert. <laughs> God, I'm still messing it up. Uh, from Sacramento. And she is an anger specialist or a family therapist, basically, correct? Yes. Yes. And she's going to talk about anger and the ins and outs of anger and divorce and go from there. So go ahead and take it. Oh, you don't have a question for me to start with? or? Oh, yes, I do. Okay. So how can you take anger and flip it as a positive in your divorce recovery? Oh, okay. Well, David, that assumption, the, what you're asking is assuming that anger is a negative. And I'm not sure I would agree with that for one. So okay. what's negative is trying to get rid of our anger and our view on anger as always negative all the time. And yet I see it as a light on the dashboard of our emotional car telling us, you know, check under the hood. Something's really amiss. Something is in need of fixing. Okay. And um, so anger is a warning light of sorts. And we don't, it doesn't have to um, necessitate that we say things we regret or do things we regret or um, betray ourselves or hurt other people. Those are all assumptions. And we've all seen that happen and it makes most people afraid of it. But what I'm really afraid of as a therapist is suppressed anger because that is what gets people into my office. Um, That's what causes depression, anxiety, panic attacks, mania, even psychosis, as well as lots of hoarding and, compulsive behaviors and a lot of addictions as well. So what are some healthy channels to channel your anger? Um, Well, so it depends on what the anger is telling you is in need of fixing. But um, so let's, can you give me an example? So in my experience, I was angry that she actually pulled the trigger and start, start the divorce. Mm. Um, And then anger sat with me for a long time and then it started to boil and it started to affect my my work, my family relationships, my friends' relationships, and things from that. That's yeah. Right. So that sounds like it's anger more rooted in feeling rejected or abandoned, and that's a really big one. That's probably the most. Uh, it can be the most debilitating um, because when you feel rejected by your attachment partner, mm-hmm. like that's a major, you know, thing. But. I, you know, in that case, if I were to work with someone who is dealing with that, I would, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, what matters is if we believe we are, you know, um, someone who were, is worthy of being rejected or abandoned. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. And so that's what I would do as a therapist is be like, okay, well, what, it, what in all of this is true and what's not? And of course, some of it is going to be true. No one's all good. But no one's all bad either. And I would, you know, really look at all that and take it apart piece by piece. Like, is that a correct assessment in our lens, you know, Mm -hmm. or maybe your ex-wife, you know, maybe that was just her lens. That's not necessarily yours. And if there are things that are true, you know, the truth hurts, but let's look at them and let's, let's fix those things so that we can grow. I see every, um, every ounce of suffering, every painful challenge in our lives as an opportunity to grow up and mature and, and grow higher too. Another one of my big subjects is forgiveness. 
And I saw one of your podcasts talks about forgiveness Mm -hmm. and it's a two person thing. Explain Mm -hmm. that to me. That was something I I couldn't grab because I see forgiveness as a one person thing. Like it is for me, you know, I can't make the other person forgive, but I can control my emotion for forgiveness. But forgiveness is a choice. It's not an emotion. I think most people are conflating forgiveness with hatred. So I'll hear people say, I don't want to harbor unforgiveness. And I'm like, that sounds like you're saying you don't want to harbor hatred. Those are two Mm. different things. Those are two different things. So if we feel hatred towards someone, you know, I, you know, the podcast you referred to, um, the one right, my most recent, I talk about, you know, feeling hatred or feeling disgust. Those are feelings like if you had a child, a young child, let's say you're walking on the street and you saw like a roadkill, you would tell them like, hey, Johnny, when you feel disgusted by something, like pay attention to that. Don't override it because it's warning you. Your disgust, you know, feelings are warning you, like stay away. And so again, I don't think those feelings have to be bad. However, we can act, you know, so if we feel hatred towards someone, we can look at that and say, what's really, what's this all about? Did this person do something objectively detestable or am I reacting to them in a way because of my own triggers, you know? And so we can really learn so much about ourselves, but, um, but to call, I think what most people are getting at when they say, I want to forgive is I don't want to like harbor hatred because hatred Mm -hmm. can grow. We can cultivate it. We can foment it and it can grow and it can take over like a weed. And I think that's what they mean. And that, that's another thing altogether, but, um, and we can, we can work through that. Um, but forgiveness is a decision. So what we can do is we can extend forgiveness to the party, the, in the party who injured us. We can say, whether we verbally say that, or we just do it mm-hmm. mentally, we can say, I choose to extend or offer forgiveness. However, it is a two-person act. For them to appropriate the forgiveness, they have to be open to saying, you know what, I will take your forgiveness because I actually need it. And so that requires humility. It requires an ownership. It requires an admission of wrongdoing. And so that's why forgiveness is not a one-party act. It is a two-party act for the other person to receive it and appropriate it. But what happens if the other person doesn't appropriate it? The other person doesn't receive it. So then you've done, you know, you have done everything on your end. The ball is in their court, but you, that doesn't mean we have to harbor hatred either. Those are two different things. Those are different, right? So what do you talk about when you talk about uh, people not really seeing themselves? I thought that was very interesting. How do you not really see yourself? I think we're all blind to ourselves and that other humans um, can help us see ourselves, but we have to also reflect, take time to reflect and, you know, see ourselves. So I call that like people are really into meditation. I'm not a big meditation fan, but I am really into reflection. So that's, to me, that means time to do introspection, contemplation, time just to take and go, hmm. You know, I had this big blowout with my daughter. Um, I'm going to like review that mentally now that I'm like calmed down. And I'm going to like really look at my own contribution to that. I'm going to look at what I was feeling, 
before mm-hmm. before I said that, what what triggered me. Um, and I'm going to own my end of it and I'm going to reflect and I'm going to learn about myself. So again, instead of it being all bad, it can be an opportunity to grow. And I myself, through times of reflection, have learned so much about myself, even in my 50s as a therapist. I'm still learning so much. Youngster. <laughs> So is there a difference between family counseling with men and family counseling with women? Family? What do you mean family? When you counsel, so when you're counseling men versus counseling women, is there a different approach? No. Okay. Yeah. I I don't really see that men or women are different other than anatomically these days. So, um but yeah, what what are you thinking in that regard? So where men are more more reserved and not prone to accept counseling more so than women, because I've seen that. That can be true. Okay. Um, but I wouldn't say it's always true. It, it's it's gotten better, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so. I think you're right. So is hate ever good? Well, yeah. Like I'm saying, like okay. So so what I find is that. That people who are really, really dysfunctional, people who are, you know, narcissistic or have personality disorders, they they have a lot of self-hatred, self-contempt, and they do everything they can to disown it and to place it on the people near them. And so a lot of the people who come to me, who, who come to therapy are people who hate themselves, but I help them see like, that was hatred that your parents actually deflected onto you. Wow. And it could be a partner as well. So a lot of people are like walk, walking around with this shame and this self-contempt that they actually picked up from someone else deflecting it onto them. So with COVID, have forgiveness, hatred, anger, has there been a spike in any of that? Because I know there's been a spike of divorce. You know, there was a lull because you couldn't go to court. And then after things kind of opened up, there was a spike in divorce. What have you seen? Yeah, I think probably. I mean, a lot of people were very much cloistered at home with people they really needed to get away from. Kids, <laughs> spouses. Um, so, but I, I don't see divorce always as bad or wrong because I, I think there can be therapeutic divorce. And I think you know, maybe it was an opportunity to just see for some people, like, this is someone I've been avoiding, like really looking at the nature of this marriage or this relationship. And I can't do that anymore. What roles does boundaries play in a relationship or in an anger management? Boundaries are so important. So yeah, so you asked me initially, um, what, how do we channel our anger in a healthy way? And that is boundaries and assertiveness. And they're kind of like one in the same in a way, but um, yeah, we need boundaries and maybe COVID, you know, really dropped a lot of boundaries that should have been there too. Mm-hmm. So um, there's that, but we absolutely need boundaries. We all have skin that covers our body from head to toe. And that's one big natural boundary. We, most people love the beach. The beach is a boundary between the land and the sea. Um, we, we, you know, everything in life have natural boundaries. And if they don't, there will be chaos. So we actually need boundaries. But the biggest boundary, I think, you know, people talk about, oh, I need a break. That's a boundary. You know, 
But I think the biggest boundaries are the invisible ones. And those are our emotional boundaries. Um, so I talk about how we are only responsible for our own feelings. We are not responsible for anyone else's feelings. Um, a lot of people are very codependent and they feel responsible for other people's feelings. And what I like to say is, first of all, um, that's not possible to actually manage someone else's feelings and you will die trying. Um, and what it does is it keeps us from attuning to our feelings. We can't actually mm -hmm. be responsible for someone else's feelings and our own at the same time. Like those are mutually exclusive, but we are responsible to other people, just not for, and that's a really important people. distinction. Yes. So when people talk about leading into emotions, you know, I, I've heard a couple of podcasts, uh, people stress leading into your positive and your negative emotions in order for healing. What do you think about that? You know, does it help? Does it hurt? I think it hurt, it, it helps a little bit. Oh, it's necessary yeah. because, well, first of all, let's, let's talk about the words positive and negative. I would say yeah. the, um, the more enjoyable and the less enjoyable emotions, uh, feelings wise, but they're all, I don't see any of them as negative or positive. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we do have to feel our feelings and the reason why people have addictions and compulsions and, um, have mental illness is because they're not feeling their feelings. Actually, all of those things are defense mechanisms for feeling our feelings. If we want to be free, we have to learn to feel and deal. Um, but feelings are made to be um, shared with other people. They're not okay. meant to be felt in isolation. That's, that's why when, you know, you get a promotion at work, you want to tell somebody like feelings are made to be shared when they're good, when they're pleasant yep. and when they're unpleasant, we need people who can attune to us, who can hear us and validate us and not talk us out of our feelings and go, yeah, you're right. I would be angry too. And we need people to, to help share those feelings too. Otherwise they're not bearable. In uh, one of your podcasts, you talk about externalizing your, your um, anger. What, is, what does that entail? you know, when you externalize it? Yeah. So we can do that. You know, I do that with my clients where, you know, I'll say, what do you, when you're telling me he did this, what are you feeling in your body? And they'll say, Oh, I'm feeling like my, my temples are pounding or, Oh, my stomach. I feel like I have this huge knot. And then I'll say, what does that knot want to say? What does it want to do? Does it want to throw up, you know, or what does your head want to say? And so we'll like, give them space to, to put it into words, to express it into words. So one of the ways we externalize the feelings is expressing them into words with someone who can hear us mm -hmm. and validate us and be angry with us and for us. So we're not alone. Someone who understands us and gets it with us. So that's a really primary way. A lot of people like to journal. Journaling is good, but it really, it needs to be shared. That's that's the ultimate. That's the ideal. That's how we really externalize our through feelings. words, through words, wow. with a safe person. So that doesn't mean confronting the person who hurt us. A lot of the time, that would be completely unproductive, and it would actually be make things worse. So it's not necessarily putting our feelings into words with the person who hurt us if they're not a safe person. If it would be fruitless, if it would like exacerbate the problem. So with a safe person who can hear us. 
Have you seen uh, the anger or the emotions get to the point where it becomes a physical manifestation? And oh yeah, it, it can make us sick. Uh, yes. sent, uh, sent to the hospital, things yes. like that, like that yeah. bad. Yeah, I would say um, the most common that I see are migraines, chronic migraines. I have one client; mm-hmm. she's had migraines for about eleven years, starting in her youth, in her like in middle school, and we've only been working together for maybe a month and a half, and they're like com- almost completely gone. She's like, "This works." Wow. They are. She's like, I'm realizing they are anger and I know exactly why they started when I was 12 now, you know, it just all makes sense. So what it was for her is age 12 was when she started suppressing her anger because her parents were like, act your age. You can't, you can't get angry anymore. So she didn't. So she stopped getting angry. She stopped expressing it. She internalized it. And that's when her migraines began. Wow. That's interesting. Oh, it's very common. So migraines, um, a lot of people have chronic GI issues, Okay. autoimmune disorders. I absolutely, absolutely believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the other really common one is insomnia. I, I myself had pretty severe insomnia for many years and I see it now as suppressed anger. And I believe that you know, what we are most angry at is ourselves because we're often betraying ourselves. And a part of us really knows that and is really angry at us and it will haunt us and try to communicate with us and say, you need to stop betraying yourself. You need to have this boundary, draw this line in the sand and we don't. And then it affects us physically. Yes. What I'm hearing you said that most of our emotions, anger, whatever it is, there's like a there's like a bright light on the dashboard and they and it's like a sign and it shows us what we need to do and we don't recognize it. Yes, that's right. So I work with um, I one of the theories uh, modalities I use as a therapist is working with the inner child. And I find that our inner children um, it, it, to connect with them, to kind of reconnect with them is to connect with our anger. And once we do that, once we start feeling our feelings, especially the anger and channeling it in healthy ways to protect us and stop betraying ourselves, we feel whole and we get out of the depression. We get out of the anxiety. We, we, the psychosis goes away. Like those things just naturally kind of, you know, ebb away. Yeah. So at what point, and and I know this is a tough question, at what point would you suggest uh, someone to seek therapy? You know, they deal with anger, they're going through a divorce, uh, things aren't going well. At what point, um, like I said, it's probably hard to say, um, should they seek professional help? Because because I definitely believe in professional help. Uh, A lot of people don't. Um, I did it. And it, and it worked great for me. So what do you think about that? Okay. I'm glad it worked great for you. So David, I became a therapist because I desperately needed one because I myself was in the most uh, serious depressive episode I've ever actually known anyone to be in I, where I was throwing up physically involuntarily and it would so have come another, at the... another physical manifestation. Yeah. And I didn't wow. know what it was. Honestly, I was 
you're so numb. I, my brain was not working. But anyway, I would be driving in my car and I would just throw up on my lap because I couldn't pull over. Um, I'd be walking down the street literally and just throwing up like it was so bad. Um, so I was desperate. I went to a therapist. Um, it did not help the therapist. And, and then I went to another one immediately after I switched and she also was not helpful. And both times I thought to myself, you know, I'm barely functioning, but I'm pretty sure I could be a better therapist than these people. So <laughs> I actually went back to graduate school for my second master's this time to become a therapist. And that's what, you know, helped me out of the depression, but also, you know, I, I tell people like, unfortunately, I don't recommend just any therapist, like find one who doesn't gaslight you, make you second guess yourself, talk you out of your feelings. There's a lot of those. There's a lot who will just sit and listen and that's all they'll do. And there's a lot on the other end who want to change your, your thoughts or um, help you just breathe. And they're not really working with the root problem. So I would say therapy can be very beneficial, yep. but you have to be very picky about who you're willing to work with. And it might not happen until number five, you know, yep. just try it out. And if it doesn't work, find someone who will work with you. Back when I was married, um, we were going to um, family therapy and this lady, and, you know, she was super nice, but every session I was the bad guy. I, I couldn't do right. So it got to the point where I figured out that this lady was a man hater. So I called the guy who his wife referred us to the therapist and he goes, Oh yeah, she doesn't like men. I was like, wow. Yeah. So it's, you're right. It's, it's, it's very interesting out there. Very. Interesting. Yeah. There's some really, can I say swear words on this? There's some really, <laughs> Go really, ahead. really shitty, shitty therapist, <laughs> really shitty therapist. And I think what happens, too, is that people go to a therapist and they're almost afraid to stop seeing that therapist because the therapist has them convinced that it's them instead of having to change. Yeah. That that it's them as in they're the problem or their spouse is the problem? Is that what you mean? Well, they're kind of hooked into the therapist, even though the therapist isn't working. How can you suggest what are some signs when you know the therapy is not working? That That's my question. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, if you're not getting better, um, but you know, I'm at the point now where my clients are getting, I mean, this isn't a brag. I'm just saying, I think it is really possible to get better very quickly. Mm -hmm. If you have someone who's really competent and really attunes to you, I think attuned, if you feel attuned to, if you feel like this person is really trying to understand you on a very deep level, asking mm -hmm. very good questions um, and that you trust them and they're getting you and you feel like they get you and they have um, good, you know, kind of like they're, I, I guess our job is to be a mirror, is to give someone a true reflection of themselves, not a distorted reflection, but a, a true image, a true reflection of themselves. And, and, and so therapist has to trust the client to like figure this, like once they to have wisdom, once they have that true reflection, to have wisdom. And a lot of therapists, they kind of want to tell you what to do or on the other extreme, they, they don't give you any feedback. I just find those two extremes happen a lot. Wow. So at, at what point in your schooling 
did you start getting better? Was it toward the end, toward the middle? Could you see that? So you almost therapize yourself if that was a verb. I think I did therapize myself actually. Um, So going to school was part of it. And then, but then I, I went back into another depression when I started my internship and it was all from suppressed anger. So like, I can talk about that one. I had a supervisor who I trusted, you know, he's a therapist, he's a supervisor. He's been doing this for years. I trusted him and I actually felt very betrayed by him in that, like, he told me my first client ever was a couple. Well, any therapist knows like you don't start a brand new intern with a couple. Couples are next level. There's a lot of licensed therapists who will not work with couples because they're difficult and they need like a lot. You need a seasoned therapist who has experience in couples. That was the first client he gave me. And I said, I don't feel comfortable with that. And he goes, you'll be fine. And so I just like betrayed myself and I felt very dismissed by him in many, many other ways. And I'm like, no, I I just didn't feel entitled to be angry. And so I suppressed all my anger and I fell back into another depressive episode. Yeah. You know, I talk about, um, you know, they talk about nature and nurture, Mm -hmm. but my nature and nurture is different. You know, um, it's almost like, the egg of the chicken, you know, are you a good therapist? If, are you a good uh, drug and counselor, no, drug and alcohol counselor, if you were never a drunk mm. or if you were a good counselor because mm. you've counseled um, drug and alcohol for like 30 years. And I kind of struggle with that. You know, do you trust them because they have experience or trust them because they went through it? I, I would trust someone who went through it. So the one thing in graduate school, I think my most of my professors kind of agreed on, they would all, because they had different theories and modalities. But the one thing I heard a lot of is what we call the wounded healer, that mm-hmm. the best therapist, and this is probably for any career or any like expert, is someone who um, has done their own work on themselves and grown through it. And, um, and that is absolutely essential. That's what, so now we're talking about wisdom and wisdom can't be learned from a teacher. Wisdom is firsthand experiential knowledge. And unfortunately the suffering alone doesn't create the wisdom. Not everyone who suffers obviously, you know, rises from the ashes and has wisdom from it, Mm -hmm. but with, but the suffering can give us the um, opportunity to learn the wisdom if we're open to it. And, and so it is an opportunity to really learn firsthand experiential knowledge that no one can, you know, someone can tell you it, yeah. but it's not going to be the same. But even if you've uh, experienced the wisdom for 30 years, but never been in it, you get a little wisdom too, I would think. Oh, what do you mean? Yeah. Like wisdom so, for 30 years? So like if you have a therapist who's been uh, a drug and, drug and alcohol counselor for 30 years, but hasn't been a druggie. They've experienced through people for 30 years. They've counseled people for 30 years. They get a little bit of wisdom, don't they? Yeah. And I think, you know, we're all human. And whether you've, you know, gone through drug and alcohol rehab or not, you know, sharing that common humanity that we all struggle with shame. We Mm -hmm. all struggle with, you know, self-hatred to some degree. We all struggle with, you know, 
without having boundaries. We So I share that humanity with my clients. And I think, you know, you asked what makes a good therapist. It's really important you don't feel judged. And I honestly can't judge my clients because I'm like, even though I wouldn't necessarily pick the behaviors you ended up doing, like uh-huh. I get, I get why you did it. I get that. I understand why you wanted to escape the pain you were in. And I can't judge that at all. Cause I've been there myself. Right. Wow. Well, this has been interesting, man. We like flowed all over the place a little bit, but just want to tell you that uh, my, my real job is I'm a dentist and I only have a few cavities. So from that standpoint, yeah. Oh man, I wish I had only a few cavities. I wish I had that track record. I have maybe three, two or three, and I haven't been in the chair that often. But I'm the best at giving giving fillings and needles. So a little bit of wisdom from me to you. Okay. Well, do you have empathy for those of us who've had all the cavities, though? I, I mean, do. Okay. I do because uh, last um, last. Uh, a week before Christmas last year, I had my first root canal, oh. and it and I struggled with that because it's it's like you know I'm a dentist. There's no way a dentist should have a root canal. It is not fair. So I had to come to grips with that and go through the pain. So I have a little bit more empathy over the past year for my patients than I had before. But I have empathy from the beginning, but I have more empathy now. I see. Yeah. yeah. See. See. Oh, that's yeah. yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right, man. Well, we want to thank you for, for reaching out to me. You know, yeah. Fun. This, this is great. Um, thank you. I, I really appreciate your time, and we'll put your uh, podcast on the bottom of the of the uh, website and go from there. But I appreciate you, and have a nice night. Okay. Thank you, David. Nice to meet you. All right.